Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 15th Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, hosted by the Institute for Government. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director for Data and Digital at the IFG, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening. Well, I say that, you may actually be huddling under a patio heater in a makeshift pub garden somewhere instead, in which case you're not listening to me at all, and I should probably stop addressing you directly. Let's start in the time-honoured Data Bytes fashion. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. And hands up if this is your first Databytes. Welcome. You've chosen a great time to start. We have a Christmas cracker for you this December evening. Four early Christmas presents in presentation form with five brilliant speakers. I know they're going to slay it. Not a turkey in sight. Just be grateful I didn't do any jokes about Santa's naughty list being GDPR compliant. Uh, hopefully my screen is going to start sharing. There we are. Sorry, that took a little bit of time. Let's start as ever with some housekeeping. We are on the record and are being live streamed, obviously. If you'd like to join in on Twitter, the hashtag is IFGDataBytes, and you can follow us live tweeting on at IFGEvents. And as ever, we want your questions for me to put to our speakers. We recommend you submit them via Slido. The case sensitive link is bit.ly slash slidodb15. Though you can also use IFG Databytes on Twitter or pop them in the YouTube chat. If you're new to Databytes, you may well be asking, why do we do this? If you're not new to Databytes, you may well be asking the same question. Databytes aims to bring the different data communities in around government together, show people what better data means in practice, and put lots of interesting work on the record. How does it work? Well, you're about to see four presentations on interesting government data projects. Each of our presenters will have eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes to present. The basic unit of information is a byte. There are eight bits in a byte. There are eight minutes in a data byte. And you can hopefully see the timer on screen. Once each presentation is finished, the presenter or presenters will have eight minutes, yes, eight minutes, to answer your questions. Remember to submit them via Slido so I can put them to our speakers. And once we've had the Q&A, we'll move on to the next presentation. Four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. You can watch all 14 previous Databytes events and find our report on the first eight on the Institute for Government website. That's Rosalie, Michael, Lisa and David from November's excellent event. So what's happened since last month? Well, we published some reports with some nice charts on the government's plans to move parts of the civil service out of London and on how well digital government coped with coronavirus. This one's showing how people were using gov.uk during the pandemic. We finally got a US election result, unless your name happens to be Donald J. Trump, in which, which case you just got angry. And in the midst of the Prime Minister's independent advisor finding that Priti Patel had breached the ministerial code with regard to bullying, we had another ministerial resignation. Though it wasn't Patel's, bully for her, it was Sugg's. Not that one. Baroness Sugg. Madness, nonetheless. This week marked an important open government milestone. It's been 20 years since the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, received royal assent. It was introduced as part of New Labour's pledge to clean up politics, but was also designed to improve the effectiveness of government. Unnecessary secrecy in government leads to arrogance in governance and defective decision making, as the white paper had it. But we haven't had that much to celebrate on its anniversary, with government making it more and more difficult for us to obtain information via FOI. Since the Act came into force 15 years ago in 2005, monitored central government bodies have received nearly 700,000 requests. Unfortunately, we've seen departments release less and less information in response to those requests over time. 
But as well as seeing that, we can actually hear it. Yes, it's been a while, but it's time for some data sonification. You're about to hear a flourish of notes. Each note has been randomly allocated to a government department. Don't worry about the pitch, it doesn't mean anything. You're going to hear more of those flourishes, one per quarter of the year, but you'll only hear the note if its department granted more than half the requests it received in full. Here's 2010. Lots of notes, meaning lots of departments, were granting lots of FOI requests in full. Let's skip forward to June 2017. Fewer notes, fewer requests being granted in full. Forget Simon and Garfunkel, that is the sound of silence. Charting the FOI data is something we've taken very seriously over the last few years. Various explanations have been put forward for the decline in granted requests. Some say the big push for open data means there's more information out there to begin with. Hmm. That could mean the information being requested is more sensitive. Some have said requests are becoming more complex. Political support for FOI isn't what it was. Oppositions become less supportive of it when they become governments. Others have suggested the Information Commissioner's Office hasn't been enforcing FOI as much as it might. And a final suggestion is that while the volume of requests has remained roughly the same, the FOI teams dealing with them have become smaller. We think there might be something in that. A few years ago, we went very meta and put in FOI requests to find the size of FOI teams, and some had definitely shrunk. In doing that research, you might say, to paraphrase the great Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the only thing we had to foyer was foyer itself. We've got a brilliant lineup of speakers for you tonight. First, we have Theo Blackwell, London's Chief Digital Officer, and Eddie Copeland, Director of the London Office of Technology and Innovation, on data sharing in London. After that, we'll hear from Rachel Forty, Lead Data Scientist at the Food Standards Agency on user-focused tool design. Then we'll have Chris Barnes from Highways England on a subject that's been coming up a lot recently, including at last month's Data Bytes, how to value data. And finally, we'll hear from DWP's John Harrison on using automated A-B testing to inform decision-making, a great and varied lineup. Add this to your diaries. We'll be back on the 3rd of February, 2021 with the next Data Bytes. We need sponsors to keep the series going through 2021. If you would like your name on one of these slides and on the screen and one of your employees talking about the good work you've been doing, please get in touch with Pratesh. We need speakers to keep the series going through 2021. If you'd like to speak or know someone else we should invite to speak, please get in touch with me. And as ever, we'll be having virtual drinks tonight uh, after the event. Please do join us. I'll put the details on screen at the end as well. Case sensitive, the link is bit.ly slash db15drinks. The password is ifgdb15. Now, before we hear from our first uh, speakers, just going to get rid of my screen share. So yes, before we hear from Theo and uh, Eddie, um, I want to be serious for a few moments. I know that's not something uh, you expect from these introductions and certainly not something you expect from somebody wearing a House of Commons Christmas jumper. 
Um, as some of you will already know, uh, I'm going to be leaving the Institute for Government uh, to go freelance and work up a book idea at the end of this year. This is actually my last working week. Now, rest assured, you don't escape me and the bad jokes that easily. I'm very pleased that I'll still be running Databytes as an associate of the IFG. So I'll be back in February, no doubt, with various bad data, dating related puns ahead of Valentine's Day. Nonetheless, this is a good moment to say some very big thank yous. When we started Databytes back in April 2019, we couldn't have imagined just how well it would work and how successful the series would become. That's been possible thanks to the support and the hard work of wonderful colleagues at the IFG, particularly Magnus and Penny on the events team, Melissa on our comms team, Pratesh and David on our partnerships team, and everyone from Team Data who've been on hand with support suggestions, live tweeting, and in Alice's case, stepping in to present at 90 minutes notice. A huge thank you to Neil, who's gone from brilliant AV support in the building, remember the building? To being a boundary pushing one man online TV production company. And none of this would have been possible without the 67 wonderful speakers that have taken part up to and including this evening, and all of the sponsors who've allowed us to keep the series running. And of course, none of this would have been possible without you, the Databytes audience, actually more the Databytes community, making what can be a frightening format fun as well as functional and ensuring that all of the great speakers, all of the great work that our speakers have been talking about has an impact way beyond their eight minutes. So here's to the next 15 Databytes events. And with that, I'm very pleased to be handing over to our first set of speakers, Theo and Eddie. Hi, uh, good evening. Thanks for the uh, introduction. We're gonna do a double header. Uh, my name is Theo Blackwell. I'm Chief Digital Officer for London. I work at City Hall. I've uh, been there for the last three years and I'm responsible for strategic digital transformation in London. And Eddie, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Eddie Copeland and I'm the Director of the London Office of Technology and Innovation, which is the coalition of the willing of London boroughs who want to work together on digital data and innovation projects. Great, shall we move to the next slide? So we're, we're here to talk to you about our vision for uh, joining up data in London. Now, the platform that we have at the moment is the London Data Store. It's been around since 2010, and those aficionados out there will know that it was one of the first, London was one of the first cities to adopt a sort of major open data platform. But really since uh, 2018, it's increased its functionality. So it probably now shares um, almost as much private data as it does open data. We've created the functionality so that we can link up open uh, private secure data sets and uh, do data projects with them. Um, and so our, our aim now is to develop uh, a new data system in London based upon a redesigned data store that will improve collaboration across London and it's 33 boroughs. So we're not just getting publishing government open data sets, but we're also increasing our ability to do data projects across our many stakeholders there. And I see that down the side of the screen, central government, London boroughs, Transport for London, civil society, NHS business universities. And by linking these together in the central registry of the London data store, um, we will be able to foster a culture where more data projects are there to support the recovery missions, uh, to support the recovery of London uh, from the pandemic and the delivery of core services. Now, 
uh, our data store doesn't exist alone. It's got to exist next to a series of steps to remove the friction that stands in the way of data sharing, as we all know. Over to you, Eddie. Did you just want to comment on this one, though, Theo? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, on the next one. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, yes, I said I was going to do the first two, wasn't I? Yeah, <laughs> so, so, so the first thing, the next slide, um, sets uh, sets up the um, the broad framework in which we uh, we will share data. So for the first time, we've gathered uh, leaders of public services together. Um, are, are we have we gone to the next slide? I still see the data store there, um, which uh, and we set out some principles signed by um, the leader of London councils and the mayor of London um, uh, as a broad vision of why data should be shared uh, in London. Now, it might strike you as odd, but this for the first time, this joint statement of intent on responsible data collaboration, we've never had something like this before. So to support our recovery in London, we have got the major public service leaders to sign up to this, to know why we are sharing data. Now over to you, Eddie. Okay. Hopefully the slides are moving. Can you see the outcomes-based methodology? Just to explain, so as part of fulfilling this ambition for London uh, local government to be able to uh, share data uh, much more effectively, it's really, really important to try and tackle some of the barriers that we've known and frankly complained about for the last uh, sort of decade or so. It's incredibly difficult to share data between organisations uh, because of information governance, because of technology barriers, lack of data standards and so on. And so we have put together as Lottie, working together with boroughs and the GLA, six measures that the Recovery Board has endorsed and which we're now really trying to push across all London boroughs and any other public sector organisation who wants it to make data sharing easier so we can do it legally, ethically and responsibly when we need to do so. Step number one is that we want uh, boroughs to use something like Lottie's outcomes based methodology for data. Time and time again, I've found over the years that uh, public sector organisations often say we have this problem. Let's try and get all the data together and see what it tells us. And actually, we've realised for a whole range of reasons, that's not a great approach. Far more effective is to start with real world outcomes in mind. And particularly, if you can see this top right hand box, the actions, ask ourselves who could do what differently if they had better information. And we found that if you can answer that question well, you've got a far better chance of identifying the data that you need. The next point, next recommendation is about using the London data store. So Theo's explained this is now uh, uh, available as a hub for sharing data. And just to explain the importance of that, uh, go back a few months at the start of the first lockdown, boroughs identified a very urgent need to be able to share data about children in receipt of free school meals who attend school outside their home borough because in that scenario their home borough will not know that they receive free school meals and it's a key indicator of vulnerability which is obviously very very urgent to understand right now if 33 boroughs try and share data sets with each other in a spider's web fashion 
that requires setting up 528 different data sharing relationships. You can do the maths and you'll, you'll find I'm right. Um, instead, what we propose is that each borough has one secure connection to the London data store acting as a sort of hub and spoke system. Uh, and then we can securely share data far more simply and far more effectively. Uh, when we tried to share it spider's web style, even on that urgent issue, it simply didn't work. We're going to be trialing this approach over the next few months. Next point is on information governance. Of course, we've got to make sure that we're using data legally and ethically. Uh, it's, however, very time consuming when every single borough has a different approach to information governance. Um, one of the things we can do about that is to use the forum of IG leads that exists across London who are willing to act as sort of the steering committee and give their stamp of approval uh, for which initiatives should be approved. We've found that if we do it this way, you get the IGFL stamp of approval, it rapidly uh, increases the speed at which other boroughs can sign off on documents. We've also realized that boroughs have different processes for information uh, governance. And so for the first time ever, bizarrely enough, uh, we've put together a seven step process. We can find it on the Lottie website at the link you'll see on the slide uh, in order to help explain what needs to happen in what order. And again, this just takes data sharing from something like six months to being much more streamlined into a few weeks. Finally, there's just two products that we've found can really speed up the process of information sharing. Right now, when boroughs want to uh, agree the same information sharing documents, this is the document that confirms who is sharing what with whom and for what purpose. Uh, often it's done in a Word document sent as an email attachment. Different legal teams make their own edits and months are spent trying to reconcile them. There's a great product used by organisations right around the UK called the Information Sharing Gateway. It's free for boroughs uh, and it's now on offer. Lastly, there's a similar tool that Lottie has developed with Greater Manchester Combined Authority called Dapian. It does the same for digital privacy impact assessments. And again, it's ready and being used by boroughs right now. So there we go, six measures backed up by the statement of intent. And we sincerely hope this will significantly increase our ability to share data. Brilliant. Thank you both very much indeed. Uh, just a reminder to everybody watching, you can put your questions to Eddie and Theo. Uh, go to bit.ly slash slidodb15. So much to dig into. I'm wondering where to start at the moment. Um, I think the first question that I wanted to know, because obviously how government uses data about citizens and how it shares data about citizens is, is obviously quite high up the agenda at the moment, especially in the light of the pandemic. What sort of work do you do to talk to the public um, about all of this and how their data is being used? Well, <clears throat> there have been a number of examples of um, public engagement. Um, I think the most notable uh, so far has been by NHS One London, which we um, very much supported uh, and championed at City Hall. That was talking to people about the sharing of their data, and that led that was a uh, a citizen summit that was held by the NHS with a hundred Londoners representative from right across the city uh, over two weekends, just before the pandemic actually. And uh, that was, um, uh, that really got into the sort of entrails of what data sharing was about and what purposes it could be used for. So there's an intensive part that's been done. And I think pretty much on every single major new initiative on data, uh, aggregated Wi-Fi data being used by TfL, um, 
through to uh, other initiatives, um, we've we've done some quite detailed engagement as well as top level polling. Um, so I, I would say that you know that you can never do enough, but there's been a substantial amount uh, in London so far. There's a great Eddie initiative. Yeah. Well, there's a great initiative happening in Camden at the moment. I'm on the advisory panel of um, uh, an initiative they're running to have a citizen data charter. And what it's going to be doing, similar to as Theo's described, is actually getting groups of residents together, posing different scenarios of how the borough might choose to use their data, some of which are deliberately designed to be quite uncomfortable or very uncomfortable, just to try and see can we actually get people engaged in talking about the specifics rather than a very hypothetical level um, so the council can really inform, uh, be informed by residents' views. Excellent. I think I will uh, add Camden to my list of people to get to speak at Data Bytes, given that. Um, we've got a question from uh, Simon Briscoe. Hi, Simon. Uh, he says, brilliant. Um, he's then asking, have you used ANPR, that's car number plates, to track car journeys? If not, why not? Would that be a good data set to get boroughs working together? haven't come across it at a borough level in the conversations we've had today but to date but Theo from a GLA or TFL perspective yeah I mean uh, there's a huge amount of work going on at TFL actually another guest you might invite is uh, Lauren Sager Weinstein who's the chief data officer at TFL who might uh, provide further insights into that excellent thank you um, Eddie, when you were talking, you, you mentioned the sort of barriers to a lot of data sharing um, across London. Indeed, I mean, we find this across government. Um, what were the sort of trickiest to overcome and how did you get around it? Well, I mean, it's it's a continual journey. So I think some of the thorniest have definitely been about information governance because we appreciate that every organization's got a different risk appetite. And of course they have to assure themselves they're using data legally, ethically and responsibly. But we found when you know, it was about three or four years ago now, we did a pilot for a London office of data analytics which has essentially morphed into what Lottie now is. Um, but it took us six months just to get 10 boroughs to sign the same bit of paper. And it's paralyzing if we try and do that, um, certainly in a crisis. So that's a huge amount of the journey we've been on and hence we're focused on information governance. There is still though, we're experiencing this issue where boroughs I think are getting smarter and smarter at using their own data as an organization but we still need to take them on that sort of hearts and minds journey of what is the added benefit, taking the slight leap of faith of if we build the pan London picture, seeing the benefits of how issues uh, demand and opportunities transcend their boundaries. I get that, Theo gets that, because we think in pan London terms all the time. I think at a borough level, we've still got work to do to show how valuable that can be. I think we're convinced of it, and that's the journey we want to take the boroughs on over the next few months. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just say to that that um, you know my, my my the the planners at GLA tell me an interesting statistic, which is a third of London's population lives within a kilometre of a borough boundary. So when the crisis happened and someone lived on a borough boundary and support was over uh, that boundary, of course borough boundaries shouldn't make a difference, should they? Um, so. Um, we still have some work to do to build that kind of collective London view of data, which is what this process is about, reducing the points of friction that we found in our journey. 
Excellent, thanks. Um, just to remind everybody watching, if you want to submit a question, go to bit.ly slash slidodb15. Uh, we've got another question from Simon, um, and you sort of touched on a little bit of this already. Um, how many boroughs are keen to join in and which are not really interested? So at the moment, there are 18 members of Lottie, and so we, we describe them as the coalition of the willing. I describe my job as cat herding uh, for a lot of it, is trying to find where are the points where they see extra value uh, in working together. I think those who aren't yet part of Lottie are certainly not excluded from other uh, data sharing initiatives. There's great stuff going on, anti-fraud kind of initiatives and a whole range of others. Um, and sometimes it's about at what point they're ready, which staff they've got in place who really want to get the added benefit from collaboration. So it changes all the time and I'm sure we're going to get many more over the next few months. And of course, our services at the GLA are provided to all London boroughs. So the strategic planning, economic, environmental data and the maps that we do are pan London. Well, um, Pan London is a great uh, introduction to the next question. This is from William Holtham. Uh, evening to you, William. Is it still difficult to do comparative analysis across different London boroughs due to different boroughs capturing different data about the same thing? Yes. <laughs> Yes, there's there seems to be very relatively few and often it's only because there's like a statutory reason to submit data in a common format um, because what we end up with is this sort of difficult self-reinforcing cycle of, you know, over many years boroughs have procured different technology. Technology almost dictates different types of process. You know, you do the process and the order the system requires you to enter information. It captures data in a different way. You then design your process around the data capture and the technology and it becomes self-perpetuating. Um, it is a major challenge and uh, we spend a lot of time trying to unpick that. One thing to say though, I think is we have now a real opportunity to design this out of the next generation tech. So thinking about some smart city technologies, uh, the bit that I think Theo and I want to avoid is we sleepwalk into another 33 data silos. And so not insisting boroughs all buy the same tech, but agreeing on some common data standards, agreeing that non-personal data is shared in real time via API with the London data store so that we can start building up those pan London data sets. There's no point knowing about pollution in Hackney, but not in Merton um, or in totally different formats. So uh, that's at least one bit we can get right by design. And a good example of how um, old, you know, a, an existing service and old processes done differently has been changed is the London Planning Data Hub, which will shortly go live. It was a uh, project that we did with MHCLG and a number of London boroughs and um, that essentially reformed the process where planning data at any one time could include data given by a borough that week or a borough just updating their last 12 months of data on what development was happening. So now we have an automated process where the data is inputted when the applic application is actually submitted, putting the burden on the applicant, reducing costs for um, the local authority and providing effectively a live stream of planning data, which is kind of what we should have had in, in the first place. But because of old technology and old processes and a lack of prioritization, we just had an old system. Brilliant. Well, I make that eight minutes. Um, apologies to anyone whose questions we couldn't get in there. But um, Theo and Eddie, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure.
Uh, I'm delighted to welcome our second, well, our, our third speaker, our second presentation of the evening. Uh, we've got Rachel from the Food Standards Agency. Evening, Rachel, how are you? Hi, oh, yeah, good, thank you. Uh, I will hand over to you whenever you're ready. Okay, hopefully you can all see that. Um, I'm going to talk to you today um, about user-focused tool design. Um, so I'm going to start by um, telling you what the, the problem was that we, we were facing and then move on to um, how we designed the tool um, to, to uh, fix that problem for the users. Okay, um, so what was the problem? Um, so we got approached by a team in the FSA who did a lot of literature reviews. Um, this meant that they needed to identify useful papers um, and this could be to add to their knowledge base as a whole or um, answer specific questions. Um, and this was on constantly evolving topics, so they, they would um, have to update that knowledge base quite regularly. Um, we in particular got um, approached by someone who just done a literature review containing 6,000 documents um, and uh, they were asking us if we could predict the usefulness um, of uh, a, a new given document um, uh, so that they could save time in future literature reviews. Um, so the first thing we did um, was actually just to talk to different members from across the team um, and we created a rough process um, based on these conversations, including pain points along the way. Um, and then we held a meeting with the, the team leaders across the team to make sure that what we had was representative um, of their process for a literature review. Um, so on a very high level, um, their literature review um, was um, using search engines um, to find um, relevant documents for their, uh, the topic they were looking into. Um, but here's, here's the process that we came up with. So um, they would start by uh, creating a search strategy um, and the level of documentation of this search strategy would vary across the, um, the, the teams and depending on the type of review that was being done. Um, they would then look to extract information from, from uh, a range of search engines um, and different teams would use some different search engines, but there was overlap across the teams. Um, they would filter the documents that they had um, and this was done at different stages throughout the process. Um, so it could be refining the search terms that they used at the beginning um, or it could be um, looking at what terms appear in the abstracts or the titles of their documents. And uh, finally, once they've got uh, a manageable list uh, to work with um, in the time that they, are, they, they have available, um, they will manually read and filter the remaining documents. Um, and and this, was, this was the process that we, we came up with at the end. Um, and a few things came out of this. Um, one was that um, of all the teams, only one was doing such large reviews um, and that questions were not often repeated. So even if we could predict the usefulness of a document for one question, um, that question might not be asked again. Um, and that's the nature of the kind of constantly evolving topics that they were looking into. So we actually saw a different need to the one that we were approached with. Um, there, was, there was lots to be automated um, here. Um, so um, there are quite a few time consuming tasks, um, including extracting 
the documents from the different search engines and removing duplicates because uh, one could be listed on two search engines or in one search engine twice. Um, and so the first thing that we had to do was to get buy-in for this change in scope. Um, so uh, describing the problem to the, the team leader and, and also the person who'd um, requested this initially. Um, and fortunately, um, we uh, were able to, to get that buy-in. Um, so moving on to the tool itself. Um, so I'm going to go through uh, just uh, quickly the the, the 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 different steps that, that the tool did um, and and how they kind of made us have to think about uh, user user testing uh, or, or user focused design along the way. So um, the first step that the tool took um, was to read in data from different search engines um, and. Uh, this was based on search terms provided by the user um, and a date range provided by the user. Um, and the, the thing that this brought out for us was actually how do you get people to, to read stuff <laughs> and understand um, exactly how the tool is working. Um, in particular, this was because um, we were reading data from a few different APIs um, and they weren't all the same, uh, but they were being presented in one tool. Um, so they they might appear to be uh, to as a user, you come in, you, you see the same information in front of you, you assume it's the same. Um, so we needed to differentiate that. Um, also, the APIs used by the websites um, were sometimes different to the search engines APIs. Um, so if they went onto one of the websites itself, did a search, they may not get exactly the same volume of results. They would be close, um, but they might not be exactly the same. Um, and the other thing that we had to um, ensure uh, was for we had a range of users using the tool um, and some of them would be less familiar with how to, to use the search engines, um, for example, the, the Boolean operators. So um, giving them kind of help to do that as well. Um, so in terms of getting them to read stuff, we did have a welcome page um, and uh, included a lot of information on there. Um, including some search tips uh, if you're a new user. Um, however, it was very important that for those users who, let's all admit it, do what we all sometimes do, go straight into the tool, don't read the README. Um, we were really clear on how, how we labelled stuff. Um, so if a search engine was only searching certain fields um, for the key terms, um, we put in and next to the name of the search engine, what it was searching so that the users could see that this one was just searching titles, this one was just searching abstracts, etc. Um, the other thing is we didn't make people read everything. We presented the tool as well um, so, so that we could be sure that they had the information and they'd been given the information that they needed. Um, so whenever we had a new user, um, we'd have a quick session with them, talk them through the tool and then set them on their way. Um, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop there on that one. Um, but the next thing the tool did um, was it allowed the users to filter um, the documents they had um, to, to get uh, even less um, that they had to then read through and um, 
uh, manually read through. Um, so this is where user testing came in really useful. Um, so we went to the users themselves, asked them what filters were going to be useful for their teams in particular. We didn't know we weren't using, we weren't uh, performing the literature reviews ourselves. Um, and they actually gave us some additional features which were really useful, um, such as um, being able to see the articles that they were excluding alongside the articles that they were including um, when, um, uh, when they applied additional filters. Um, so all of this meant that we um, created a tool uh, that was well documented, um, transparent and efficient. Um, the, the last one being what we'd set out to do, the first two being um, some added bonuses along the way. Um, and all that this meant that it was it was a widely used tool, which made us happy as well. Um, I was, I'll just explain, sorry, I, I realised I missed one thing. Um, the final bit the tool uh, did was allowed you to download um, the, the included articles, excluded articles, and all the filters and search terms you used, hence the, the well-documented well documented and transparent part of the tool as well. And I'll finish there. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Rachel. Um, <clears throat> just a reminder to everybody watching, if you'd like to ask Rachel the question, you can go to Slido, which is bit.ly slash slidodb15, or you can use hashtag ifgdatabytes on Twitter. So thank you very much for that, um, Rachel. Um, I think you can stop sharing your screen and we'll be able to see you in full, I think. There we go. Excellent. Um, I can imagine that um, the tool could be of real use to lots of other people. I was sort of thinking, oh, literature reviews. I can imagine uh, something that made it easier to do that would be of huge benefit to other organisations. Have you sort of shared this more widely? Have you been talking to any other organisations? Is, is there a plan to sort of do so? And how do you think that might change um, some, some of the user requirements? Yeah, um, so the the code um, for the tool is, is open source. Um, we have uh, a uh, FSA GitHub um, and it's available on there. It does involve, there's some um, search engines needed uh, a company credential. Um, so it won't work um, <laughs> unless you, you have access to the specific sites. Um, so I think it probably, the where it would differ for different um, uh, organizations I imagine is the the search engines you actually want to use um, we identified the overlap between the teams internally um, but I'm sure that will that will differ for other teams um, there were some apis we looked at using that weren't possible uh, or or just were kind of in the time frame we had weren't possible to to, to implement um, we are thinking of expanding it to include more um, but uh, that'll be a feature expansion. Um, yeah, at the moment we're kind of with the the tool has been um, put into use. It's being used, um, but we're at the stage where we've we've just done the kind of first check-in user testing again to make sure it's still in order. So I think there'll be kind of cogs worrying about how we now now move from there. Excellent. And that was such a comprehensive answer. I think you preempted Mary Susan uh, Barry's question, even to you, Mary Susan, um, which was what software was used? Did you con use or consider open source and is the tool available via GitHub? Um, so thank you for that. Uh, we've also got a question from Hartley Miller. 
While queries differ, some documents will recur. Very useful data is how good a document is, possibly indicated by how often it was consulted or reconsulted. Can you do that with your tool? Is this uh, kind of asking how many different search engines it appears across? Or have I misunderstood that? Um, that's a good point, actually. I think it's, um, I suppose, wh whether you can tell anything about the quality and the usefulness of the document from that or how often um, sort of people go to it. So is, is there anything in your in your tool that would allow you to do anything? Uh, okay. I'm, I, you know what? I'm not actually sure um, if that information was available um, through the APIs um, in terms of how often the, the documents were visited. I, it would be an interesting question to look into if it affects the ordering of the documents at all from some of the APIs, possibly. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, not, not something we looked into ourselves, but definitely an interesting question. Excellent. Uh, we've got a question from Ash Tanki. Um, can you give examples of the APIs that you used? Yeah, so PubMed um, is, is one of them, and that's actually one um, where the, the two are the, the website API and the search engine API are not the same. <laughs> um, so that's one where we've um, had uh, I'm kind of digging through the documentation and finding the differences and they in the future will be um, aligning the two. Um, so, so at that point, we'll have to update the tool. Um, Scopus uh, is another one. That's one where we um, don't, uh, we have credentials. So that's not one that um, everyone will necessarily have access to. Um, and that, that one fortunately did align. Um, and Springer um, was the third one. Excellent, thanks. Um, we've got just under four minutes left, so do keep your questions coming. There are a few more we've got as well. Um, Mary Susan is asking, um, it says, great to hear the tool is available via GitHub. Would you be willing to share a link? I'm sure we can um, do that after the event, if that's possible. And then we've got uh, Craig Morris, um, who says, the process seems very tool-centred. Do you intend to incorporate some artificial intelligence, AI, reinforced learning to help guide the tool rather than the users? So I think the, the main thing we didn't want to do um, was change the capability or like uh, uh, basically we, did, um, we didn't want to determine how the team should be working at this stage. So we're trying to maintain exactly the functionality that they had in the literature review, but just automate um, the, the process. Um, and, and remove the, the, the difficult manual bits. Um, I think that it that possibly there are things that could be done there. So, for example, the original ask was um, to predict usefulness um, of um, a document. Um, but actually, the the kind of um, you know simpler thing um, was actually the, the the far more time saving thing <laughs> uh, all across the team. You know, it was, it was very time consuming and removing duplicates, but that's something you can do like, just like that with um, automation. Um, so uh, in, in this case, um, we were very much trying to keep their functionality the same, but um, just remove the, the, the difficulties along the way. Um, so possibly in a, in a, di in a different um, 
uh, solving, you know, the future solving of problems <laughs> could be useful. But in this case, yeah, no. Excellent. Um, we do have some, we can squeeze a few more questions in, so please do keep them coming. Um, one from me, you've mentioned a few times um, about you know, sort of future plans, not being able to get everything done in the, in the time frame of the initial project. Um, what does the future look like uh, for this, do you think? Um, so uh, there's a few more kind of user uh, ways we want to make it a bit more user friendly um, at the moment. Um, so, for example, um, if the tool errors, it would be nice if that appeared in red <laughs> as a very simple one, um, whilst at the moment it appears in black. Um, I've yeah, I've got a, and possibly expanding it to include. So I think actually from our users point of view, the most useful thing is if they just have more search engines in there. Um, so possibly expanding it to have more search engines. Um, we're just mainly checking what's actually possible. Um, and and um, I think, I mean, we've, we've been giving it a little while to bed in, but I think it's now, it's now ready to um, kind of see what would be useful in addition. I think um, we've got a little bit of feedback on a few uh, kind of cosmetic tweaks to the tool. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the, the those are the main plans. Oh, possibly adding a, at the moment, there's not a kind of example of how to use, it would be nice to have an example of how to use a tool on a on like a page in the tool to say, okay, here's the step one, you do this, and this is how you can string together a, a search term. Um, yeah. Excellent. Well, I think that brings us pretty much perfectly to eight minutes. So, Rachel, thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you. Um, we now move on to our third presentation tonight, and that is from Chris from Highways England. Evening to you, Chris. Evening. Hi, Gavin. Thanks for having me. Excellent. We can hear you. We can see you. Um, we are ready whenever you are. Hopefully that's come up now. We can, we can see it. Over to you. Great. So, yeah, my name is Chris Barnes, Lead Data and Information Governance Officer for Highways England. Um, we, uh, Highways England, operate the Strategic Road Network, which is uh, all the motorways and major A roads in England. We're formed from uh, the Highways Agency in 2015. Um, traditionally, we've thought ourselves as an engineering company, but we're moving towards a, uh, a future where digital and data will be even more important to what we do. Um, the obvious example to that is connected autonomous vehicles, but obviously we are in our second road investment period and we have some pretty stringent uh, efficiency targets and delivery targets to hit as well. And we're never going to be able to do that if we operate in the same way. So data is going to be one of those things which are going to help us hit uh, all, all the targets that we need to. Um, how is England has an ambition to connect the country, but like most organisations, we are highly siloed. Um, we have different data being collected in different systems, different standards uh, across all of our functions. We have an information vision to realise the value of our information. I'm not sure it's going clicking forward. Um, our information recognises the opportunity to connect ourselves and make better decisions using better data. Central to this is the view that data is an asset which needs to be managed and invested in the same way as any of our physical assets. But how do you do this? 
uh, when. Just I might just do it in this way because it's clicking forward without me. Um, yeah, how do you do this when data is an intangible asset and doesn't have a traditional value? So we looked at a year's worth of IT business cases and found basically an eye-watering amount of money which was being invested in our data. Tens of millions was being invested across the company in data, but we had no way to understand um, what we were getting for that. Um, there was no way to actually show whether or not that investment was having a positive effect on data quality at all. Um, this is not a new conversation. Many of you will have had the same. And as, as Gavin mentioned, it was brought up in the last data bytes by Rosalie Marshall in you know, when she was asked, how is she going to prove the uh, that the investments made by the uh, data standards authority had any impact? So for us, it is that key thing of making sure that data is valued as an asset. We're in a place where on the left hand side of this graph, investment in data was high, but data quality was still low. So the insight we were getting for that money was was, was negligible. We needed to move highways England to a place where those arrows were essentially flipped, where investment wasn't necessarily lower, but better prioritized, better targeted, and uh, and, and our investment was in a way that we could generate maximum value and generate maximum insights. The answer was in valuing our data by showing that our data uh, had a, a tangible value by making that intangible asset tangible. It was something that our colleagues could appreciate and that you can measure and that you can understand. The question is, how do you do this? So studies like uh, Capitalism Without Capital by Stephen Westlake, uh, they look at things like the, uh, the value of intangibles like software and code, but what about the data itself? You know, if one of our asset management systems fails, we know how much a new server is going to cost, we understand how much uh, new software is going to cost, but what about the data itself? If we lost our data, how much would it cost to reconstitute that data? How much would that give its ability to run our network? And that is the value of the data to us and to our stakeholders. So we're introduced to a company called Anmut, who were uh, investigating the use of data in listed companies, and they were looking at uh, the fluctuations in share price of listed companies and how much of that fluctuation was directly attributed to having better data. We like their approach, but obviously we don't have a share price. Uh, we're not a listed company, we're a government owned company. So we needed to actually understand what is our measure of value. So although we don't have a share price, we do have a uh, an economic value which we uh, so for every one pound we invest in the SRN, we generate two pounds seventy worth of benefit to the economy. And we wanted to know could we break down that benefit to UK PLC and work out how much of that was as a direct result of having data that was fit for purpose and in good condition. So we obviously generate that value by undertaking a bunch of activities and we uh, we listed out all of our activities and we wanted to understand which were the most important activities to our stakeholders. So we surveyed different stakeholder groups, some of those you can see at the top of this slide, and we got those we got them to prioritize our activities by what was most important for them and what created most value for them. This was really, really key in being able to play back our findings to our, our colleagues because it took data 
which our colleagues don't really understand and tied it directly to our core business functions, which they do. So we prioritise our, uh, our activities for this pairwise comparison. Once we had a prioritised list, we looked at the data which was required to underpin those activities. So the value drivers, the activities themselves and the data sets were both given uh, a ranking, were both given a weighting. And we looked at then how dependent uh, the decision making was on data. So some of our activities were almost 100% uh, uh, dependent on data. Some activities you can get away with using gut feel and experience. So each of these three chevrons in the middle were given a weighting, were given a ranking. We put all those weightings through a machine learning algorithm, which then gave us the data value for each data set. And in typical 80-20 uh, fashion, 80% 80 of the total value was delivered by 25 data assets. This was really, really crucial and pivotal for us. The question that we wrestle with and the question that you may also be wrestling with is how do you make people pay attention to data? How do you make data important to people? And by proving this direct causal link between a, not a small number of key critical business data assets, the activities that they underpin and the delivery of our strategic objectives, we were able to cross the Rubicon. It was, it was a real watershed moment for our chief exec, our board and for our uh, our exec and SLT by showing and by proving um, that direct causal link we've done more to advance the cause of data ownership in the last six months than we have done in the previous five years that I've worked on Highways England by showing that those 25 critical data assets and the rest of our data is a direct uh, critical business asset for us and if we didn't have that data it would directly inhibit our ability to undertake our core business functions. We've actually uh, progressed the concept of data ownership. We've got directors to sign up budget lines for not only budget but resource in managing data. And we've actually uh, we've actually got people to look at things that surround data itself, like data standards, like the performance of our supply chain, and uh, the, the rationalization of our technology estate. So I'm rapidly running out of time. I think my, my pips are about to go. Uh, so I'll just leave you with one thing. So although this approach is tailored to Highways England, I'm absolutely convinced that we that you can replicate this approach in any government department, in any local authority. It is a complex, uh, a complex issue, and uh, I've, I've tried to distill this into eight minutes, but obviously happy to take questions. But if you want to have a more in-depth conversation, I'm also more than happy to do that. That was fascinating. Thank you, Chris. Um, if you stop sharing your screen, we'll be able to see you uh, in full. Excellent. Um, and again, just a reminder to everybody watching, um, if you want to ask a question of Chris, go to bit.ly slash slidodb15 or use hashtag ifgdatabytes on Twitter. Um, the questions are coming in already. Um, so let's start with one from Mary Susan. Have you shared this project with other government companies like Ordnance Survey or executive agencies or uh, non-departmental public bodies? Uh, we have. We've had conversations with, with several groups. We've obviously showed it to, to DFT, um, who are our, uh, our sponsoring department. Uh, they're quite interested to see whether or not we can apply it to the rest of the family. Uh, we've also spoken to Treasury uh, and also to a couple of local authorities like I was speaking to. Uh, Leeds City Council, just to name one, um, last week. Excellent. 
Um, we've got a question from Anonymous as well. Um, so cyclists and pedestrians are killed in accidents caused by a focus on cars first. To what extent can your data be used to support city cycleways and LTN 20 slash one, etc.? Must confess, I'm not entirely sure what that is. Is that low, low, low traffic neighbourhoods, I'm guessing? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no there's no reason why it couldn't. Um, it's that's that would just be another one of our uh, of your value drivers, another one of the activities. Um, so obviously, if you if you had an activity that you were interested in and you needed data to support, you can still provide that same causal link. Um, you can you can slice and dice it any way that you can to prove the the importance of your data for any activity. Um, for us, obviously, cycling. You know, less important. You can't really cycle on on the motorway. Uh, you'll get a nasty telling off by Mr. Policeman. But yeah, it's it, it's a way just to prove that data is absolutely necessary for you to make a better decision for for whatever activity. Excellent. We've got a question from Ash. Does Highways England share their data with local authorities? If machine learning models are created from that data, will those models be shared? I suppose there's also an interesting question about how you sort of, as you were saying, you value the things around the data itself as well. Yeah, we do share. Um, it, it's something that we know that we need to do better on. Uh, you know, DFT had a project um, over the last two years around data sharing with local authorities, which obviously we play a big part in. It's something that our, our chief data officer is, is also keen on. Um, you know, you don't start and end your journey on the strategic road network you uh, you start in a local network you go on to ours and then you come off onto another local authority so that whole network that whole journey is something that we're really keen to influence and there is there's loads of data which is important not just in terms of our works but understanding that the flow of data how uh, how traffic interacts in those boundaries we don't just want to have it you know ending our interest ending when you go off a slip road that's that's no help to anyone Thanks. I mean, as, as we were sort of discussing, you know, this this is quite a difficult problem. We know lots of people are interested in solving it. What were the biggest challenges that you faced um, in, in the project? So big challenge number one is is getting an agreed ver, uh, an agreed uh, an agreed agreement <laughs> sort of, thing of what our value is. You know, obviously, we, as I said, we're not a publicly listed company. So coming to an internal agreement about what our value is that we can slice and dice was quite challenging because it's not something that we ever really had to sort of think about before. And, you know, we tried a whole different variety of approaches to slice up that value top down, bottom up, side to side. So coming to an agreement of what that value is was quite tricky. The next thing is obviously understanding your data estate. As I mentioned, you know, we've got a highly siloed uh, organization like most people. So actually understanding what data is used to underpin which activity, where the regional variances, how dependent um, the the activity is on data, uh, that was quite subjective. You know, do you do you need data to undertake an activity? Put a percentage on that. You know, it's quite a difficult thing for people to to get their head around. And I suppose the the most difficult thing as well is making that relatable to the business. It was really key for us to present a so what back to the business. And that's why we were such, at such pains to tie the data 
to business activity to provide that direct causal link between what we do and the data that's needed was really really crucial and that's when you start to see the light bulb you know go on and people think yeah actually if we didn't have this data or you know if we had better data our jobs would be so much easier excellent thank you um so another question from hartley miller have you and how have you taken account of data sources needed to make others usable but often not recognized by users so data sources needed to make other data usable. Um, I don't know because most of the data that we looked at is is internally collected data anyway. Um, you know we don't tend to ingest a lot of external data sources. Most of the data that we looked at was data that was created for an operational purpose. I think we understand our data quite well and the activities that we undertake. So. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't too much of an issue for us, I don't think. Excellent. Um, we've got a question from Simon Briscoe. Sorry, my Slido is just jumping all over the place. Um, is any of the data helping drivers directly? Um, for example, usually where and when traffic jams occur, or is it mainly a project to make the company more efficient? Yeah, because the benefit that we generate is to UK PLC and because the stakeholder groups that we um, that we talk to you, you you will have you've seen on the slide there but we spoke to freight and logistics companies and we spoke to commuters um, and the activities that were most important to them were things like the provision of traffic information diversions uh, keeping traffic free flowing. So how do we um, clear incidents and how do we mitigate the impact of congestion? So things like smart motorways. So we've been able to go back to our colleagues and say, right, this is what's really important to our stakeholders. These are the activities which are most important to road users. We can make those better and the experience of using our roads better by improving the condition of our data. And it actually allows us then to say, Here's the service that we're providing with the data as it is. If we invest in our data, we can then improve uh, the service that we offer and the economic benefit that we provide. And by remeasuring that economic benefit and by remeasuring uh, how dependent those things are on data because we've invested in the data, that's when we can see the return on the investment and we can start to see that you know, the ROI improving on our data. So yes, it, it is internally, focus and we do we are focusing on uh, on our internal efficiencies and making our processes better but the net effect of everything that we do is for the road user ultimately so we've got about 30 seconds left which i think means i'm not going to quite be able to squeeze in um a couple of the other questions that come in but just a very very quick one if somebody were looking to do what you've done uh, in their organization who else should they be looking to what else should they be reading in 15 seconds <laughs> well i think basically come and talk to us and we can help you work out how you can do the same in your organization because this is the first time this approach has been taken in a public organization so i say i'm absolutely convinced that we can tailor uh, our approach to, to whichever body so yeah come and talk to me brilliant well thank you very much indeed chris thank you and uh, last but not least we move on to our final speaker of the night and that's john from dwp good evening john hi gavin can you hear you me again? We can indeed, loud and clear. Over to you. Great. Okay, hi everyone. 
Um, so my name is John Harrison. I'm a data scientist uh, working at the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, and tonight I'm going to talk to you about using automated A-B testing to inform decision making. So um, what are we trying to do? So I work on uh, the Universal Credit Service. Um, and one of our major challenges that we have is that we have a steadily increasing claimant population yet the staffing resources we have to deal with this are not increasing at the same rate. So we need to find ways to make the service more efficient whilst continuing to support potentially vulnerable claimants. Um, and the way that we want to do this is to get a really good understanding of, of what works when we plan how to improve the service and evaluate the changes that we make. And A-B testing is one tool that we can use to, to help with this problem. So what do I mean by A-B testing? Um, well, simply, the intention is to randomly split users into groups that receive different variations of a feature, and then we measure the outcome to determine which of the groups gives the best result. Um, and by a feature, in the context of uh, DWP or Universal Credit, that might be something like the content that we show on a page on the website, the journey through a series of pages to perhaps um, notify us of one of uh, changing your circumstances or verify your identity or the contact strategy through which we communicate with the claimant. Um, but in a real business context, A-B testing can be far from straightforward uh, and typically you might face three main problems. Um, I'm going to talk through these in sequence and how we can address them. So the first one is the allocation of participants into an A-B test in a robust manner. Second is the collection and persistence of data about your participants in the test. And the third is the correct and consistent analysis of your test results. So in order to address this, we uh, introduced uh, A-B testing framework in Universal Credit. And I'm going to give you a quick taste of how that actually works. So the Universal Credit service is written in Java. Um, and in Java, at a high level, you use methods to act on objects. So say, for example, you have a universal credit claimant and you want to assign an agent to them, then you would have an assign agent method that takes a claimant and returns an agent. Um, and in the simple case, that would be a sort of one-to-one -one allocation. So you'd have a claimant and you'd, you'd allocate them a fixed agent. And if you want to introduce an A-B test, then what we do is we just add an additional parameter which modifies any of these methods. So we have a trial randomizer, which takes your participant and determines whether or not they're in the trial. And then depending on the result of that, we can branch the functionality to do different things. So if you're in the trial, you might get one treatment. And if you're not, you might get something else. And in the case of assigning an agent, that means effectively that different claimants may get allocated different agents. And therefore, that actually facilitates an A-B test. And this is a very simple example, but the method that we use scales to all sorts of different um, things you would like to test uh, and actually enables us to, to test quite complicated functionality. So how does this address these three problems that I mentioned a few minutes ago? Well, if I talk about allocating participants into an A-B test first, the reason why we care about this is because without proper randomization, your test results are either essentially useless or limited to a certain precision. But the way we allocate participants in our framework is we use universally unique identifiers, which are essentially these long strings of characters and numbers which are generated in a random manner. 
And by splitting our participants on these random numbers, we ensure that our groups themselves are actually random. So if we have a list of these UUIDs for our participants in a trial, then all we need to do is order that, split it in half, and we've got an A-B test with two random groups. Or we can split it into thirds, and we've got an A-B-C test and all possible variations. And the other thing that's great about our framework is we can modify the parameters to do these splits in real time. So that means we can stop and start our A-B tests on the spot. Um, so for example, if we have a problem or an unexpected change in the service, we can terminate a trial immediately. Um, we can also run multiple A-B tests in parallel, and we can identify which trials a participant is currently in. So we have a lot of flexibility in our approach. And onto the second problem, the data collection problem. So manual data collection of participants in A-B tests at scale is really impractical. Um, and there's all sorts of horror stories of these massive Excel spreadsheets being shared around via email of who's in what trial and what's been going on. And this introduces lots of potential for error. But because we implement our A-B tests through our digital service, we actually directly store the participation data uh, for our A-B test at the point of allocation into our database. So for example, we end up with a record like on the right-hand side that says participant went into a trial um, and they were into this group and they went in at this particular time. And once we have that, we can use our data platform to um, automate overnight jobs that transform this data into analyst-friendly tables and statistics. So for example, you might get the table on the right, which summarizes the trial we ran and said it had two groups. This was the number of participants and this was when they were allocated into it, and this is when it closed. Um, so this gives us a centralized record of every A-B test that we run in a format which is independent of the specifics of the trial configuration. So really easy for analysts to use. And then the last problem, the analysis problem, the reason why this can be a problem is because if ad hoc analysis techniques are applied, and it makes it hard to compare results between tests um, and really understand ex exactly what the Im implications of them were. So we, to address this, we created an analytical pipeline of peer-reviewed evaluation tools that produce all of our results, charts, and documentation for A-B tests. And this gives us greater confidence that our results are correct, and it produces our results in a standardized format so that stakeholders become familiar with what to expect when running a test, which, which is really important for us because a lot of our stakeholders don't have a technical background, and to them, running an A-B test is quite a terrifying prospect. Um, and this helps to reduce our analyst resource as well and means that our end-to-end A-B test duration can be really fast. Um, and we can build upon that once we've established those analytical foundations to do more advanced test designs like sequential testing, where we monitor the performance of A-B tests as they're in progress. And this means we can have confidence in testing higher risk changes because we can uh, monitor them as they go along. So the overall impact of all of these changes is that our end-to-end A-B test duration is much, much faster than it was before. So previously, we might expect to run a test within a couple of months, maybe six months. Um, but with this framework, we can do the end-to-end -end process typically within a month. And if we're iterating on an existing test, we can typically do it in about a week. So in summary, um, A-B testing is a powerful approach to helping your decision-making. And in Universal Credit, we use it to directly inform the development of the service. And we've developed an A-B testing framework that makes this process easier, more efficient, and more robust. But we are completely aware that A-B testing is not the answer to all of your problems, and there's often reasons not to do it. There might be ethical reasons not to test, 
or the way in which the thing you want to test has been implemented means you need to take another approach like a quasi-experimental design. And we've still got a lot to learn in the way we do this and we're exploring all of our options and we're collaborating within the department and across the government in order to continue to improve on this. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much indeed, John. I don't quite know how you managed to cram all of that into eight minutes. Um, if you stop sharing your screen, we'll be able to see you properly. Uh, and while you do that, just a reminder, uh, we've got some questions coming in already, uh, but please do submit your questions to John using bit.ly slash Slido DB15 or using hashtag IFG Databytes on Twitter. Um, so we've got a question from Ash. Where do you host your backend for the website and where is the data being stored? For example, Google Cloud or on-premises? Yeah, so um, the data is stored on-premise at the moment. Um, that's how it's been since the, the service started about five, six years ago. Um, we are eventually going to migrate to uh, Amazon Web Services, um, but at the moment it's, it's, it's on-premise. Um, so yeah, it's all stored in, we use a Mongo database to store, store our data, and then we pull that over to our data platform in order to, to do analysis on top of that. Excellent, thanks. Um, Anonymous, I think uh, Anonymous has asked a few questions this evening as well. Um, does DWP test to ensure its digital systems properly implement the law? For example, testing to, to ensure that uh, claimants can access UC fairly and are not unfairly rejected? Yeah, so um, we test a variety of outcome measures, but typically the things that we're concerned about are that um, any changes that we've made don't, for example, add additional friction to the claiming experience. So um, a common metric that we might be interested in is like dropout rates in um, registration processes and things like that. Um, also, we're interested in, for example, um, the how the, the content of, of pages on the service inform how easy it is to understand it and how how readily claimants can use that information to perform the right actions that they need to progress their claim so a variety of things but typically very uh claimant centered in the outcomes that we hope to achieve excellent thanks um we've got a question from sam at med confidential uh, they published a report uh, earlier this year on universal credits and he asks if a test resulted in um, a deterred or closed legitimate UC claim, what happens to those people? Could such a change be rolled out live? If it, sorry, I'm not quite clear what you mean. If a test resulted in a closed claim? Uh, resulted in deterred or closed legitimate UC claims, what happens to those people? Okay. Um, so I think it's, whether a claim would be closed or not is uh, independent of any tests that are run. Um, at any point in the, the the universal credit application process and throughout a lifetime of a claim, it's possible for a claim to be closed for a variety of reasons. Um, those would remain true if you were in an A-B test. Um, the way we would set up the A-B test would be to try and mitigate any risk of additional claim closures. Um, and if we thought that the processes that we were changing could impact on that, then that would be one of our outcome measures. Um, and certainly if we found that that was increasing, then we would mark that as an unsuccessful test. 
Excellent, thank you. Um, question from Ruth Dixon. Good evening to you, Ruth. Uh, she says it's really interesting. Uh, with the AV test, can you tell if people drop out of one arm more frequently and could users start again with a new ID? Um, so I, I, always those, those kind of questions are always the big challenges when, when running AV tests. Um, we, can, we can certainly tell who, who drops out of different arms via the, the sort of success measures that we set up for the different trials. Um, and whether or not you could then re-enter um, would be dependent on the, the circumstances. So if in a, in, in a typical example, if you had an existing claim and then you dropped out of an AD test, you wouldn't be able to re-enter with the same existing claim. But if you did completely close that and went through perhaps the whole registration process again, for whatever reason, um, then it is possible that you may come back in. But typically, you know, the, the rate at which claims are closed and then people re-enter is on a much larger timescale than the timescale over which we run an A-B test. So in practice, extremely unlikely to happen. Thanks. Um, just a reminder, we have got a few, we have got time for a few more questions. bit.ly slash slidodb15 or hashtag ifgdatabytes on Twitter. Um, we've got a question from Craig Morris. He says, John, brilliant stuff. Where is the decision-making process on the test results? Is it coded or referred to a coffee field analyst or both? Um, so what we try to do is we try to automate away the boring bits. Um, and we leave the kind of juicy details of deciding whether something is a success or not to the, to the analyst. Um, so typically the way that we would run an A-B test is we would have uh, a multidisciplinary multidisciplinary team that has the proposed the change and has worked to develop that. And then they would work with a, a data scientist to advise them on the test. Um, and then typically at the end of the test, that data scientist would report back to them with a presentation outlining the changes to the, to the outcome measures. And then we would use that to make a decision on whether or not the test was a success. And um, it may be the case in, in certain circumstances that although the test might be successful in terms of changes to the outcome measures, that doesn't mean it's enough of a success um, to actually be implemented or vice versa. There's, there's all sorts of possibilities. Um, so I think as a, as a data scientist, that's the really interesting part in this, in this work to kind of focus on what the implications really are of the results. Excellent, thanks. Uh, Hartley Miller asks, how far can you go into successive steps in a claim, one page at a time or series, and what model of the user experience informs the choice of what to test? Okay, um, so how far we can go will depend on um, the extent of the, the functionality that we want to cover. So some processes are sort of defined as like a single journey, but they have multiple steps. And if it's a single journey, then we can typically test the whole thing. Um, if it's a more complicated process that covers lots of different aspects of having a claim, then we would be uh, that would be more of a challenge. Um, but that's something we want to be able to expand our capabilities to do in the future. Um, what was the second part of the question? Uh, the second part was what model of the user experience informs the choice of what to test? Okay, um, so I wouldn't be able to comment on that directly because um, we, as I say, we work with the 
multidisciplinary teams that include like uh, user centered design, um, user research, content design, all the you know different different prof professions that propose different um, variants that we would test in a given test, and um, it's kind of a discussion with us between us and them to kind of arrive at a test design um, guided you know by what they think is their are their best candidates to begin with and normally that's gone through some kind of user research or design process before it comes to being eligible to be tested in an a b test and final 30 seconds um, this is fitting since i talked about the anniversary of freedom of information in the introduction if someone were to foi a list of the a b tests you've run and the measured results is that a question that dwp could answer so i suppose um something about transparency and, and records of all of this um, well, I, I guess I can give, I can say that we, we certainly have a, a record. So from the, um, the way that we set this, the framework up, we have a record of all of the tests that we run. Um, we document all of the results and the decisions that we made on behalf of them. Um, so in, in principle, that information is available. Excellent. Well, John, thank you very much indeed. I can't quite believe how much ground you covered in 16 minutes there. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. So um, all that remains for me to say is, um, first of all, to remind you that uh, we are doing some virtual drinks afterwards and my screen sharing is still working in a very odd way. Um, hopefully you can now see on the screen uh, the details for joining us for virtual drinks as soon as this finishes. Uh, it's all case sensitive, so it's bit.ly slash db15drinks and the password is ifgdb15. I'll leave that on the screen uh, while I do a, a few other parish notices. Um, if you enjoyed tonight, you can obviously watch the archive uh, on the Institute for Government website. We will be back on the 3rd of February 2021 with another brilliant lineup. Um, if you can't get enough data at the IFG this week, uh, join us at 9.30 tomorrow morning, where we will be discussing data after Brexit with a fantastic panel, including Tech UK, Bruegel and the Open Data Institute. I think all that remains then for me to say is a huge thank you to our speakers this evening and incredibly varied presentations on very different aspects of data, very different approaches. So a huge thank you to them. And as ever, a huge thank you to all of you for joining us and making Data Bytes the success that it is. Um, if I don't see you at virtual drinks, and if I don't see you at the event tomorrow, have a very Merry Christmas and a good December. Thank you. <laughs>